if I really sat down and, and continued to give it a continuous prayer and thought, I think that that would drive me crazy. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I need to, whatever, you know, sanity that is, uh, yeah, I have available to me, I need to try to, you know, keep that right. as much as I can. This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith to help give voice to the spiritual thoughts of everyday people, both in and outside of the church. I'm your host, Eric Elkin, and I want to thank you for listening. Guests on Ordinary Voices are not authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. Here's the thing. People speak in codes, catchphrases, inside jokes, references to past experiences. There's work codes, family codes, and codes for friends. My family has a code, and it sounds something like this. I told my son Peter I was going to start a podcast, and his response? Hello, hello, hello. This is your chaplain, Captain Noel. Great and manifold are our blessings today. This great, godly miracle of radio really gives me the opportunity to talk to you on the air. It's a line from the movie Good Morning Vietnam. An Elkin family favorite. We we use lines from movies to express emotions in our house. Okay, we have issues, but at least we own them. Peter's saying, great idea, Dad. That is so cool. Don't suck. I created Ordinary Voices to allow people to speak in their own codes. And I, as a pastor, would listen to see if I could speak of faith in their code and not mine. Then maybe we might grow together in faith. I always warn people, you'll probably hear something you'll disagree with, or may even make you angry. I just ask that you listen in a way that nurtures a better understanding of your neighbor and encourages future conversations. So with that in mind, let's begin today's show, Painesville, Ohio. As Ferguson, Missouri came unglued in racial conflict and the internet exploded with opinions, I stumbled upon the most intriguing conversation on race. It was taking place on Facebook between two childhood friends from my hometown, Painesville, Ohio. They challenged without attacking and listened when challenged. Both men are African American in their early 50s. They are professionals working in a corporate setting. It was such a thoughtful conversation on race, I wanted others to hear it. So I reached out to one of them, Brian Jones, a friend who worked with me on our high school yearbook, The Anvil. What started out to be a thoughtful conversation about race actually turned into a reflection on a community, Painesville, Ohio, how that community made all of us, black and white, thoughtful about race and the pain we experienced when we discovered the rest of the world was not as thoughtful. Before we begin, I need to provide you some background. Painesville is an eastern suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, on Lake Erie. In the 1600s, the colony of Connecticut was granted rights to a strip of land in northeast Ohio. It was called the Connecticut Western Reserve. 
The founder of Painesville, Thomas Payne, like Moses Cleveland, who founded Cleveland, were both from Connecticut and settled the area as representatives of Connecticut. The influence of this history is visible in the architecture. Painesville looks like a quaint little New England town. It was also one of the last stops on the Underground Railroad, a launching point to cross Lake Erie into Canada. In high school, I worked in an old tavern. We stored cleaning supplies on bunks once used to house runaway slaves. The bunks led to a series of tunnels under the parking lot. It was a visible yet uncelebrated history. Many families moved to the area to secure factory jobs. However, in the late 70s, the industrial fabric of Northeast Ohio began to collapse. Of the far eastern suburbs in the 70s, Painesville was the only community with an African-American population. Everything around us was all white. Let's just say it set us apart. But first I want you to meet my friend. Brian's story is one of perseverance and determination, but it's his diversity I find intriguing. College, military, corporate, nonprofit, church, and journalism. Beyond race, Brian provides a very unique perspective on life. So let's listen to Brian. thing was when I graduated, I just wanted to sort of prove that at public schools or public high schools in Ohio, that we got just as good as education as kids that, that went to private schools. So really, the big reason why I chose to go to John Carroll was because I wanted to prove that um, on an academic level, that I could be competitive. But in the process, you know, I had to come up with a way to uh, try to pay for it. And so that's when I chose to join the National Guard uh, for the National Guard Scholarship. As it turned out, we actually had a lot of, guy, or, or a lot of um, guys at John Carroll who had did the same thing. But when the state of Ohio in 83 ran into budget problems, what Governor Rhodes decided to do at the time was just kind of go ahead and suspend college funding to the private institutions, um, the guys and gals that were going to public universities still got the Ohio National Guard grant, and so they were able to continue. Um, I always had to find um, creative ways or different ways to be able um, to kind of accomplish the things that I, I thought that I needed to accomplish, you know? Mm-hmm. In the 88, I knew, you know, I wanted to, to go into or, or have some type of background in journalism and broadcasting. And so when I re-explored the military, I found out that the Armed Forces actually had a program. It's called the, the Defense School of Information. So I joined the Navy, and all of that training that I wanted to get in communications, um, I got for free. And I got to travel, and I got to meet some great people. Um, and, you know, I got to do some great things. You know, I think one of the best is, man, I got to be on Colin Powell's staff. Really? You know, in Georgia, which, you know, that just uh, totally blew my mind. It was it was like I was actually on assignment um, from my unit to a, a, another at Fort McPherson in Georgia down there visiting a friend. And um, so got augmented to to do some videos, you know, for the week and do a couple of radio programs. But that was just, you know, how kind of God had, had began to really order my steps. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but I began to kind of like recognize that he, he was the one um, 
that was doing it. So I completed there. I got out. Um, I worked for a paper group up in the Seattle, Washington. I started the, the, the paper as a reporter, worked my way up to an editor, um, did that. Uh, then I ran into some troubles with PTSD. And quite frankly, um, from 1994 until 1997 and 98, I was in pretty much a drug and alcohol haze. Mm. You know, but through the, the, the prayers of, uh, you know, my family, um, I got help. And by 1999, uh, I actually answered the call to ministry and I was able to be underneath um, a good pastor and a great friend, uh, Roderick Coffey, um, who taught me so much and still, you know, uh, teaches me a lot just about ministry and and how to treat people, but more importantly, you know, how to have my own personal relationship with Christ. I found out that inside the church walls wasn't my forte. <laughs> 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 um, Harris, we, we, you know, we all have different gifts, and I learned out that, yeah, I'm probably not, you know, that's, that's not in my gift. So, um, God used me a lot more effectively outside. And uh, so he led me to start a ministry in 2005, Cross Outreach Ministry. Brian's ministry sought to improve ways for congregations to minister to people suffering from addiction and mental health issues. I don't want to diminish these conditions, but that's a whole show on its own, and I wanted to focus on race. Brian will reference two conversations. The first is his conversation with Eric. Eric is also African-American and a software engineer. He literally has been friends with Brian since birth. It was this conversation that initially caught my interest. The second conversation was with JJ, and JJ is a Facebook name. He's an Italian-American who also graduated from our school. On the surface, Brian and JJ were people with radically opposing views. What caught my attention, though, was the incredible patience both Brian and JJ shared with each other. They were honest in a way only true friends could be. Let's continue listening. That was probably really driven by Eric in the sense that he just said, you know, if people pay attention, then we could have a dialogue about race uh, in the country that we need to have that that folks are hesitant to have. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, to his credit, we realized that we could draw in through our Facebook friends. uh, We could draw in folks, different races, different cultures into the conversation. Um, And if we did it respectful, we could have a, a really good debate and discussion around the issues of race. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's not only race, um, but it's about ju- uh, 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 justice and injustice. Um, and at that time, ju- you know, law enforcement, mm-hmm. we were just really surprised at the folks that responded, you know, and how they responded. And I think for us, we always thought, as a lot of African Americans uh, believe, <clears throat> the issue of race uh 
what really recreated it or reignited discussions about it was really when President uh, Obama was elected president. And so the, the, the premise was was that what he meant, what President Obama meant as becoming the first African uh, Amer- American president in the United States. So for some, a lot of hope. For others, a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, the next step is, is are you going to be truthful about what side are you on? The hopeful side <laughs> uh, or the fearful side? If, if you set out with that premise of you want to encourage a conversation, you got to open yourselves up to hear the things you don't want to hear. And you can't slam that door shut when, when people start saying the things that you don't want to hear. Uh, uh, what is it like to hear things you don't want to hear and then be patient with the response? In kind of the base level, we knew that uh, the major responses were going to come out of hope or out of fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe J.J. represented um, that side of fear, whereas maybe Eric and I are more hopeful. Going back to the conversation with JJ, because there's got to be a comfort level that JJ has with you to be able to talk to you. And there's got to be a comfort level to come back at that. I asked him about it. So he got out of the Army, he started boxing. And that Mm. was the time when, like, boxing kind of reemerged in the area. And it it was great just to go watch him work out, you know, and, 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 you know, watch him fight. But... One of the things that he mentioned, and I asked him, you know, I said, how has, grown, you know, how did growing up in pain still shape your experience in race? And he was like, you know, I saw the difference when I got in the Army. And then he said, but even more so when I started boxing. He said, because there were very few um, white or, or Italian boxers at the time. And he mm-hmm. said, and the way that I worked my craft was I already knew how to get along with, with folks that didn't look like me. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, so he had the same kind of experience where it, it was really difficult for him or it was hard to have an understanding of why you wouldn't get along as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, the, the, the obstacles and the barriers that we put up in the way to make it more difficult. What Brian says next is big for me. For 30 years, I've been telling people I grew up in a town where race didn't matter. And for 30 years, people white and black have been calling me a liar. I never prompted him on this issue. He offered it on his own. Now, here's the other thing, is that we kind of understood that though growing up in Painesville, um... The way that we were exposed to race after being out in the world and having opportunities to go somewhere was like way different. You were even laughing because it was true. I mean, it 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 blows my mind. Uh, The environment that we all grew up in, um, it it was just like the issue of, of of race was never presented to us in a negative way, right? You know, um. 
growing up in Painesville, Ohio. So we understood that. And, and privately, we had had conversations with other folks about it. You know, do you feel the same way? And the response was, you know, I've been in the military. Uh, I went here and lived this place. And yeah, it, it's just like totally different. So where other peoples had in, had racial encounters, growing up in Painesville, um, that never really happened because we, I mean, it would, and you know, you and I had this conversation. We really didn't think about it that much. And, yeah. and as soon as you left Painesville, and that was even back then, as soon as like, you know, as soon as like, I remember in junior high, what it was like to go play basketball games at Manor. And any of those men are junior highs, you know. Um, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were the the black sheep of the county. Right. I remember, like our faces, and you know, going back to the locker room, just shaking our head, like, "What the? What are they? What, what's going on? Right. We just want to play basketball." <laughs> I always and I always tell people this is the hardest thing for me is because like we went to church in Menor. And so yeah. it was people that I was going to church with. <laughs> we played period football one time. And uh, we were, just, I mean, we were slaughtered Perry. And uh, one of our high school mates, he comes back to, he comes back to the huddle and he was just ballistic. And he goes, they called me an end lover. And I mean, he was just so upset because we never, you know, what I mean, we were we were just all teammates. So we love teammates. And we, you know, I, maybe we were jaded. I don't want to say jaded, but it was just I don't know why, you know, our parents. I don't ever remember like my parents putting an emphasis on it, really. Right. My friends were my friends. They didn't. You know. Right. Your parents definitely, you know, um, your dad being at the Y, and you know, he just knew everybody anyway. Right. And still remembers, by the way. Right. 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 <laughs> well, I. But yeah. That, so um, that was hard, and I remember it hurt him, and it, it and it hurt him deep. Not so much of of the word that they used that you know to call him, but that they were talking about his friends, and he was hurt. I mean, he was right. deeply hurt because. Somebody made a, a derogatory comment about folks that he cared about. Here's the funniest thing. Our school and community was only about 15% African American. But to the surrounding all-white communities, this qualified as predominantly black. Everywhere we went, it seemed, something racial happened. Rocks thrown at a bus, physical threats, physical attacks, name-calling. We remember stories that interrupt our sense of norm. The racial stories of my youth stay with me because being attacked for racial reasons is not my norm. The story Brian remembers reveals something about his life. Brian remembers a story of empathy. Empathy for being black from a white person, even a friend and a teammate, is not Brian's norm. 35 years later, you can hear in Brian's voice how much this meant to him. But this is also where our conversation shifted from race to Painesville, Ohio. We started asking each other, what about Painesville made that kind of racial climate possible? 
use Angel as the baseline, kind of. Uh, there weren't families, uh, there weren't economic uh, extremes, uh, I don't think. No. So, you know, the majority of us, you know, were, were middle class. So maybe that was another thing where um, race was kind of a non-issue. Uh, the other thing is, f- for the most part, families came from somewhere else to Bainesville. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was that uh, in common, I think, um, during our, our age group. Um, and it, it was, and so we all had the same type of family values. We all had moms and dads. I mean, we didn't see a lot of uh, our friends being divorced. I'm, and I'm like, I'm like really racking my brain now to think of how many friends with single parents, families. I'm just thinking of two off the top of my head, maybe three. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we kind of all had the same things. Two-parent families, brothers and sisters. You all looked out for everyone in the neighborhood. You knew if uh, you got out of line, so most parents uh, saw you getting out of line, uh, they had permission to draw you back in line. So, you know, and that was understood for everybody. Right. You know, Um, there were definitely a lot more things in common um, that weren't in common. And, you know, I don't know how much that contributed to the fact that race was really a non-issue for us. Yeah. Um, But I suspect that it, it probably did have a lot to do with because you know now looking at it i i can see where um <clears throat> extremes in wealth uh and poverty produce um like you said a whole different set of uh of issues right and all of that can be really attributed to um the degradation of of the family and family right. values in america yeah and yeah. it's sad because we you and i are proof uh, that strong family units, regardless of, of, of race, can ascribe and you know have the same hopes and dreams and aspirations and achieve. Right. Patesville's poor economy bound us together because it affected everyone. People bound by difficult circumstances tend to be more empathetic people. We were never more compassionate as a nation than during the Great Depression. In today's world of economic inequality, we're coming unglued. Brian mentions family values and the divorce rate, and I cringe when I hear these words used. Family values is loaded with negative and ambiguous meaning. Blaming divorce needs to stop. Too many single and divorced parents provide good homes for their children, Plus, it doesn't consider the abhorrent level of domestic abuse in this country. However, statistically speaking, mid- and low-income single-parents' homes live closer to the edge of financial collapse. The question we need to ask is, how can we minister to these families instead of blaming them? What Brian is getting to, and I agree with, is the issue of stability. Too many children are not growing up in an environment that produces stability. This is true of both high- and low-income families. 
Bryant identifies three forces of stability from the Painesville of our youth. One, our parents didn't teach us to make race an issue. Two, we watched out for each other. Three, parents had the ability to hold other children in line. And I would add a fourth. They also didn't teach us to be afraid of the world. Granted, we don't want our children jumping into cars with strangers, but your eight-year-old soccer coach is not out to destroy your child's ability to get a college athletic scholarship. Thirty years' experience working with children and families across the country, across races, across socioeconomic lines, has given me some perspective that I would like to share with you now. My father worked at the YMCA in Painesville. He once had to discipline a 12-year-old boy who was stealing, picking fights, and lipping off to workers. The boy yelled at him, You wait until I tell my dad. He's going to come and beat you up. An hour later, an angry father showed up at the Y. They went into my dad's office to talk, and my father explained everything that had happened that day. The boy's father turned to his son and said, Did you do those things? The kid said, Yeah, Dad, but... He says, No, did you do those things? The father then turned to my dad and said, you will never have another problem with my son. And he never did. Fast forward 40 years to Davenport, Iowa. A 14-year-old boy pushes a woman off a bike and steals it. A passing driver saw it and got me to help find the bike. We found the bike and the boy, but no charges were filed because no one wanted to get the boy in trouble. Later, the father of the boy came after the guy I helped with a baseball bat. They slashed his tires, and I got the windows of my car shot out six different times. These stories are not about discipline. They're about trust. The father in the first story trusted my father enough to sit down and listen. Because he listened, the son can trust his father to make good decisions that will help him succeed in life. The father in the second story did not trust. He created a destabilized world for his son, and he didn't know it. The kid knew stealing a bike was wrong. Now he knows he cannot trust his father to protect him from bad decisions. And the saddest part of that bike story? I was the guy that could have helped his son. Matter of fact, I did. Years later, I coached him in a basketball league for kids and gangs at a community center. I spent 13 years running a Christian camp in eastern Iowa. A parent once tried to physically threaten me because his daughter was in the wrong cabin. He destabilized his daughter's sense of security. She knows she'll never be able to intimidate anyone to get her way. If that's how you get things done in the world, how's she ever going to survive on her own? In trying to protect his daughter, he actually made her world a more fearful place. A stability-building response would have been, I know we can work this out and come to a positive solution. Stability is the heart of Brian's statement when he said it's about hope and fear. Stability nurtures hope, while a lack of stability produces fear. When you engage the world, are you an agent of hope or a promoter of fear? If you could get that captive audience of, of white people together, say this is what really, from my view, this is what we need to deal with. What would that be? Yeah, so <clears throat> as a man of faith, it definitely starts uh, at that level, you know, and we had this sort of discussion, but, you know, Sundays is still probably the most segregated day in the United States. 
Sorry to interrupt, Brian, but you're right. According to a recent survey, Sunday mornings are still clearly divided along racial lines. Black churches are all black, and white churches are all white. In the 60s and the 70s, churches reflected the cultural divide. Today, the church's racial division no longer reflects our culture. People learn, play, and work in a multiracial world. It also contradicts the church of the first century, whose strongholds included Turkey, Syria, and Africa. Um, and so when you really drill down and, and think about that and put it in a Jesus perspective, um, that's sad. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of those things where um, if we're not willing uh, to be courageous with our faith uh, and work together within the body of Christ to heal those issues, um, then it's really not going to be precipitated and advanced uh, to a greater degree outside of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you get, we set ourselves up for folks to call us hypocriticals. And in a lot of ways we are, Mm -hmm. you know, and I always think about in terms of uh, racial issues, my favorite passage kind of, you know, to put that in perspective for me starts in Galatians 2, when the Apostle Paul um, has just returned from uh, Jerusalem. So he goes there, he says the Holy Spirit sends him there to just kind of get confirmation uh, from the Jewish apostles. Well, they're all Jewish apostles, but the ones who had been ministering to the Jews. And to just uh, kind of, you know, give him their blessing uh, for his call and his answer to uh, ministry the gospel to the Gentiles. So he goes back um, there in Antioch, and uh, Peter visits. So during the week, you know, Paul says, hey, Peter is hanging out with with me and the Gentiles, and everything is cool. Um, But then as soon as the big-wig Jewish guys come down, uh, then Peter gets a different attitude. And Paul says, that's not right. The same power of Christ uh, that works in me, you've already confirmed that, you know, you have it too. And so it's not about an issue of how Jewish we are or how much we can hold on to Jewish traditions, but rather it's about what we decide to believe about Christ. So there's the common denominator. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that, um, in a bigger degree, within the body of Christ, uh, we need to have that same courage uh, as Paul when it comes to the issue of race and just stand up and call hypocrites for who we are. Uh, Mm -hmm. And on that issue, specifically within the body of Christ, I am of the belief that we are um, just a big body of hypocrites in the United States when it comes to race. Now, that said, I could sit back, you know, and throw darts at the body of Christ all day, but the flip side of it is, is so... Seeing what I see and believing what I believe about it is I'm also compelled uh, to not just give lip service, but to allow myself to be used in whatever way God chooses to use me um, to fix the problem. And so uh, that's kind of what I do. Sometimes it's been where um, I've had that confrontation as Paul with Pastor about certain uh, 
things uh, within the body of Christ. And uh, the spirit has compelled me to make those um, those kind of declarations, you know. But at the same time, um, I still have to hold myself authentic, you know, because I can't just go off half-cocked if I don't basically believe what I'm preaching. Right. When Brian first shared the Galatians text, I thought he saw Paul, who's representing African Americans, calling out Peter, the white church, as a hypocrite. However, the more I listened to our conversation, I realized for Brian, this text is not limited to race. Brian has three passions in his life, race, addiction, and mental health. I admitted our conversation about his addiction and mental health work, but Brian essentially challenged pastors with his statement. Why can't you minister to people with addiction and mental health issues the same way you minister to people with cancer? He never got an answer. So Brian made me think about Galatians 2 in a broader way. To me, Peter represents the modern church. We do things when it's convenient for us. And Paul represents today's culture. The culture is calling out the church's hypocrisy, and we don't like to hear it. We say we're the body of Christ until a part shows up we don't like. We say God so loved the world, but we really mean our little space. We're supposed to love the prodigal son and share with him unless he's on welfare and then he's a burden to our rights. Brian consistently uses the phrase body of Christ, and it's not by accident. It effectively communicates how inclusive the church should be. He uses it to remind, challenge, or proclaim the love of God from deep within his soul. The body of Christ includes my beautiful blue eyes and my lower intestines. If you're keeping score at home, that's my best and worst parts. It's my heart and my elbow and my skin. I'm not saved by your understanding of God. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus Christ who died for the best and worst of me and you. It also hit me as I wrote out my closing thoughts. Painesville, Ohio taught me a gospel I never experienced in my church. Don't get me wrong, Painesville was not a perfect place, but it was an inclusive community, economically, socially, and racially. I never felt like I completely fit in, but I always felt included. My church, on the other hand, was a wonderful place full of loving people, but I never felt good enough, and I never felt included. Had I not had a dynamic encounter with Christian community at a camp in New York, I doubt I would even attend church today, let alone be a pastor. And listening to Brian, he reflects the same experience. The church is fellowship all the time. Um, I'll use Painesville as an example. Uh, across from, from Lake Erie College, on Route 20 in Painesville, you've got a United Church of Christ, predominantly white. You've got a Lutheran church in school, predominantly white. Behind them, you've got uh, one, two, two African American Baptist churches, and one down on the corner. Now, how many times do you think any of these churches fellowship? So, like they, they share a parking lot. Yeah, I was gonna say they share parking lots there. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. That's how close they are in proximity. But I mean, like, how many times do you think they did get together just to eat within the body of Christ? Right. Doesn't happen. Yeah, oh. and so and so that's a that's a great example of here we are in the, in this community, 
when we didn't really have problems, but it existed all the time. Years ago, I had a chance encounter that transformed my view of race and faith. I ran into a former staff member at the camp I ran in New York, a young African-American man from the South Bronx. He started thanking me for teaching him how to like white people. It was a bizarre form of praise that made me so uncomfortable that I started making jokes about shopping at L.L. Bean and driving a Subaru and naming his kid Biff. He got really irritated with me. He said, you don't understand. I grew up in an all-black neighborhood. I attended an all-black church in an all-black school. Then I go to college and everybody was white. If you hadn't taught me how to like white people, I would have dropped out of school after the first week. But I graduated from college, and I'm a teacher, and I've returned to my community to teach. I lift this up because I want people of faith to understand. It's in the simplicity of community, a community in and of Christ, that transformation happens. Before this conversation, racial diversity was just about being authentic to our Christian mission. After it, I realized it was about more. It's about saving lives and creating a better world. To close this show, I want to return to Brian's conversation with JJ. But then, you know, I'm also glad uh, that he did get in on the conversation. And I was also glad um, to, to, to understand what he felt about uh, and what shaped um, his ideas on race. Right. You know, and he, even, you know, he may even made the comment, man, if we're in the foxhole, I don't care if you're gay, purple, you know, can you shoot? Right. Um, you have my back. And so a lot of times... Um, when you have that type of military experience, that's the perspective that you put it in when you meet a person. Look, you know, I I don't care basically what you do, but um, are you going to fight to save my life as much as I'm going to fight to protect and save yours? If you don't trust the person next to you, the conflict moves from the battlefield into the foxhole. We see this taking place all around us right now. Trust starts with a conversation. From a conversation, a community is formed. A Christian community is formed specifically to discover how can we love, serve, and protect our neighbor. And this is what's happening in Galatians 2. Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and challenges us basically with, how's he living in you? So, how's he living in you? I'm not the smartest man in the world, but I play one in my head every single day. So I hope Ordinary Voices has made you smart, or at least a little more smarter about life and faith. On behalf of Brian and Eric, keep the conversation going, but always speak it in love. And consider using this podcast for your small group. If you're a congregation, consider inviting another congregation of a different race to eat a meal with you, together, socialize, take Brian's advice. You know what to do! <laughs> on behalf of all ordinary voices i want to thank you for listening to us and remember to like us and by us i mean me like me share me don't be afraid to share your emotions about how much you like this and share it with a friend